Father, we will not be shaken in our confidence in you because, Father, in your word we see you are the rock, you are the beginning and the end of all things. And in the days of our lives as we experience one thing after another, Father, those things come and they go. And everything in this world will come and go. But, Father, you are always there and your word will always be there. And because we have trusted in you, we will be with you always. And we can confidently look forward to that. And we thank you, Father, for that confidence and for that assurance. We thank you for what we're learning in your word. Do we study that we're in the middle of, Father? I thank you for that. Father, let it be useful to us again today. There's something for us here today, Father. We look to that, and we look forward to what you'll do in our life by what we learn. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Welcome. Good morning to everybody. Matthew chapter 27. We're in the story of Jesus' death on the cross. Obviously a, a high point in the story, very important part. Uh, as he hangs and as he eventually dies on the cross in our uh, study, as we get there, you need to know the Father is bringing to completion a plan of redemption that he determined from before the foundations of the earth, we're told. Which is to say, everything in God's word and everything he's ever done in history, for that matter, is revolving around the few hours that we're now studying on the cross. So that's why we're studying him carefully. That's why I'm deliberate about it. That's why we're taking our time. Uh, some might say that's why we're going slow. Uh, we want to understand everything we can about them. Now, if it were possible, we're actually going to get deeper today and in weeks to come in what's going to happen now. And as we do, we've got to start asking questions, as we have been, on why is it happening the way it's happening? Why didn't the Father want the Son to die immediately, for example? Why the delay? Why the extended time on the cross, etc.? We know he has to die on Passover. I mean, Passover is the feast that was given to Israel to picture the Messiah's sacrifice. So we know he has to die before this day is out if that picture is going to be fulfilled. But even then, why hours on the cross before his death? These are some challenging and important questions. We're going to take time to understand them. And the first thing we need to do today by way of introduction is to put a timeline on the screens here for you, a roadmap of sorts that will give you an overview of what happens through the rest of this day that we're going to study through the end of this chapter. The Gospels divide Christ's experience on this day, the day on the cross, into thirds. And each of these thirds accomplishes something different in the plan of God. Altogether, Jesus is going to hang on the cross from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. That's a total of six hours, by the way, and it's interesting because the number six in Scripture is the number for sin, for sinful man, which reminds us he's taking our place He's taking our sin on the cross. But those six hours are themselves divided into two groups of three hours. The first three hours, Jesus hangs on the cross during daylight for the curse of sin, or sometimes we say for the wrath of men. In other words, this is the time in which Jesus experiences the consequences of sin. Now, you might think, well, that's sort of obvious in a way, right? The whole thing is about sin. Now I want you to stop. Think about this for a minute. You and I take for granted that there are a lot of bad things that we experience every day of our lives because of the consequence of our sin. But Jesus had no sin. Ergo, he never experienced any consequences for sin until he experienced the consequences we deserve. That is, he experienced his body hurting. He experienced his pride being shamed. He experienced uh, what it's like to be treated as a criminal, to be mocked, to be rejected. Things, again, that we all experience at some level because of sin. None of that was something he knew or would have known apart from this moment. Ultimately, as this comes to completion, he will uh, die, right? He will experience physical death. And that is the ultimate consequence for sin. God pronounced physical death as a consequence for the sin in the garden. He said, from dust you came, till dust you will go. That is the consequence of sin, that they would see the physical death of the body. And so Jesus, likewise, is now experiencing, ultimately, a consequence of sin that he never would have experienced, and I want you to understand that. He would never have died. 
He would have never had died. If he had not consciously taken on the cross, he would have lived eternally because he had no sin. What are the wages of sin? Death. No sin, no death. Jesus is dying as a consequence of sin that was not his own. Now, that's the first three hours. He is experiencing in those three hours the consequences of sin, the wrath of men, which is the sin that brings wrath upon us in our daily walk. But of course, that's not the ultimate penalty of sin, is it? Sin's penalty doesn't stop when our body dies. If we don't know Jesus, we go to a new level of suffering, a new level of consequence. And Jesus took that as well. In the second three hours that start at noon, the world is plunged, the Bible tells us, into complete darkness. We'll learn more of this when we get there. And during this, and not just Jerusalem, by the way, the entire planet was in utter darkness for three hours, completely unexplainable by natural means. And in that period of time, the Bible tells us Jesus experienced the second death, as the Bible calls it. That is, he experienced a separation from the love of God. He experienced the spiritual death that comes upon someone after their body dies as a result of sin. Or, to put it simply, he experienced the wrath of God. Jesus took our place in that judgment, just as he did in the earlier one, in the wrath of men. He experienced separation from the Father for the first time in all eternity for three hours on the cross. We'll study that when we get there. Finally, at 3 p.m., Jesus dies. And his body is prepared for burial while his spirit descends, Paul tells us, into the inner parts of the earth, leaving that body behind, lifeless, to be buried in a tomb. Now from 3 to 6, his body's being prepared. They had to get him in the tomb before sundown because at sundown a, pass, a uh, Sabbath began and they couldn't do that work after Sabbath began, so they wanted to rush him into the tomb. So he didn't hang on that cross through a Sabbath period. As you know, three days later, his spirit returns from the inner parts of the earth, reunited with his body, resurrection, and so on. We'll get all of that out as we get there. Those are all the consequences that humanity has coming for sin, the physical death of the body, the ultimate eternal death that we would suffer without Christ. And Jesus suffered all of those in our place, not for his own sin, but of course for our sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Before we move back to the text for today, I want to just note something that maybe you picked up as we went through that little summary together. Did you notice in human experience, in our experience, we experience physical death, physical death first, and then we experience that eternal death if we don't know Jesus, right? But did you notice in the way he takes our place, Jesus suffered those in reverse order. He suffers the spiritual death of separation from the Father from 3 until 6 p.m. Then he suffers the physical death after that. And if you're wondering, well, why does Jesus experience it in a reverse order from the way we do, I will explain that in a future week. So come back. But it is significant. Meanwhile, we return to where we were last week. That's verse 37. And in chapter 27, verse 37, uh, we're going to pick up there. Now, as I mentioned here before, Matthew is very parsimonious in how he does his description. He's very concise. He gives you one verse for a major moment and one verse for another major moment. So we stop at each of these. We're literally going verse by verse for now. And each one of these needs to be unpacked. So the next verse is verse 37. And it says, And above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. I'm stopping here because I want to give you a little historical background on what this is about. Romans customarily would put a sign on the cross for each condemned man, which described their, their crime for anyone who was passing by to read. And of course, the whole point of a crucifixion was to be a deterrent to crime. I mean, when you saw how horrible it was, you were supposed to think, I don't want to ever end up there. And so they would put the crime on a board, a placard, so that the person who, who was dying, you'd see what they were guilty of, and you'd think, oh, I never want to do that. That's the whole idea. Matthew says they put this sign above Jesus' head. That's an interesting detail, because it would be the one clue we have to tell us the type of cross that Jesus was crucified on. On the four types of crosses that Romans would use interchangeably, only one of them had wood above the head of the individual where they could then put this kind of sign. And it's the one we commonly talk about today, the lowercase t 
And that's why we then assume that's what he was on. The other styles are an uppercase T, there's nothing above your head. Uh, there's a X, there's nothing above your head. And there's actually one where there was just a single pole uh, and the person would be above that. There's nothing above his head. So this would indicate then the lowercase T style cross for what it's worth. In the one that was put above his head, Pilate records his crime in a way that he knew the, Roman, the uh, Jewish leaders would, would hate. And he does this to provoke them because he doesn't like them either. So he writes, uh, Jesus is king of the Jews. He, they wanted him to say, no, he claimed to be king of the Jews. And, and Pilate consciously wrote, no, he is king of the Jews. He wrote it in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew because that would cover all the bases for any kind of, anyone who could read in that day. Now, if you look at the various gospel accounts, they all record that inscription a little differently. Remember what you do when you see differences between the gospels? You add them all up so that it's one picture that each man took a piece out of. And when you add them all up, you end up with this inscription. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's what was written above Jesus. And predictably, all the religious leaders got in a huff about it. They complained, and Pilate ignored them. What Pilate did in that day was write the truth. And the truth is important because it says Jesus was not dying for any crime. He was dying for who he was. He was dying because he was king of the Jews, and he had to. That was the plan. Now, as you imagine this scene, I don't want you to imagine Jesus high off the ground. This is another opportunity to dispel a misconception. Based on what we see in movies or pictures or whatever, the impression we have is that this is a 25-foot cross, and Jesus is way up in the sky, right? Look, the, the Romans knew there was no advantage in lifting up a condemned man any higher than you needed to to get his feet off the ground. It's just high enough to kill him. So his feet were probably nailed to the cross just a little bit above ground level. And because his knees are bent, his head's not even that high either. Maybe six feet off the ground. Maybe seven feet off the ground. Here would be an example perhaps of how close he would have been to people who were standing near him. Um, this is typical of the, the height of a cross. Again, you just need to understand, they just needed to get the guy suspended in the air. They didn't need him to be you know, towering up in the sky. So now Matthew moves to what is ultimately the final event of those first three hours, and he gives some more time, some more attention to this event. We'll start, though, with just the first verse in verse 38. He says, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Now, I stop there because you need to know who these guys really are. Matthew tells us there's two men crucified, and that in itself is no surprise. Crucifixions were a daily occurrence in Rome. Because here's why. Romans did not punish criminals by holding them in jail or in penitentiaries. You know, a Roman would only jail someone temporarily as part of the procedure while they awaited trial or awaited an audience with Caesar or some Roman official. That was the only reason you put anybody in jail. A convicted person, once they were convicted of a crime, they're not going to be punished by giving them confinement. I mean, Romans viewed confinement as free living. Right? They, they gave you food, they had to guard you, they had to care for you. That was not uh, the way Romans operated. So you had basically two divisions of criminal penalties. You had minor crimes, major crimes. Minor crimes, you, get, you pay a fine or you get scourged. Major crimes, it was execution. Either by decapitation if you were a Roman citizen or crucifixion if you weren't. So as a result of limited options, Crucifixions were a common occurrence in that day, so it's no surprise that on this particular day, Jesus is not alone on Golgotha. But the thing we need to clarify is, when Matthew says these guys were robbers, here's the problem with that. Robbery was not a capital crime in Rome. You didn't go to death for robbery. You, you got scourged, usually. Or if it was minor petty theft, you might pay a fine. So if these men were just thieves, they would not be on the cross this day. And the answer for why they're there is the Greek word used that's translated here, robbery, is sometimes used euphemistically in that day to describe an insurgent, like they're stealing power. They're a coup, right? And in fact, Josephus, who was an ancient Jewish historian of the time, when he wrote about men who were trying to overthrow Rome, he uses this very same word to describe them. So we know that in that time, historically, this word could be used to describe thievery, yes, but also trying to steal power as in an insurgent. And guess what? Rebellion against Roman authority, that was a capital crime. That did get you killed. So what we're learning is these two guys that were on either side of Jesus, they are probably associates of Barabbas. 
Remember, Barabbas was going to be killed this same day for this same crime. We've been told already he was an insurgent. He was, a rebel, he was in rebellion to Roman rule. These three guys were probably all together in that rebellion, but for the fact of Jesus showing up that day, Barabbas would have been there with him. So one son of the father was replaced by the other son of the father. So that means you have this very interesting collection on Golgotha that day. You have... On either side of the king of the Jews, who came offering a kingdom to Israel, you have two men who came in force to establish a kingdom for Israel. I mean, he came offering, Jesus came offering a kingdom of God that you obtain by faith in Messiah, but they came thinking they could install their own version of that kingdom and throw Rome out of power. They're thieves in that sense, robbers, trying to take something that can only be obtained through Messiah. And as such, their presence is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, when it's told that the Messiah, when he dies, would be numbered with transgressors in his death. He's numbered. He's one of three transgressors on this day, although he himself is not actually one. And it's meaningful that these men are arranged by God's sovereignty to be present with Jesus on this day. There is a huge significance to their presence. And to get there and understanding why takes a few minutes. And it starts with the next passage. Matthew, before he gets back to talking about these men, he sets the scene for you. What was going on around them as they're all three hanging there together? Verse 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, we'll let him now come down from that cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. So the Romans put Golgotha, the location of this event, they put it in a very strategic place, remember? Right outside the city gate. We looked at that in an earlier week. If you had walked outside the city gate on that side of the city wall, Golgotha is probably, I don't know, from here to the wall in this room. It's really close. The whole idea is that it was in full view of travelers who were going in and out of the city on that path. That's the whole point. It's a deterrent, right? They want people to see it. And since this is Passover, kind of like us on Thanksgiving or near Christmas, you know, the traffic goes up, everybody's out. Well, on this particular day, the traffic would have been huge. It would have been just a non-stop stream of people right in front of Jesus as he's hanging fully naked on a cross, a few yards from the, wall, from the walk. So naturally, you know how it is, you, you feel guilty doing this, but you can't help it when you pass a car wreck. You know, you just got to look what's going on over there. It's the same thing here, right? No one really wants to see what's going on, but oh, got to look, got to see what this is about. And when you look, you look at the sign. And when you read the sign, now remember, Jesus at this point is so disfigured, we've been told already from Isaiah, that he doesn't even look like a man anymore. So anyone who may have known him before or seen him or, you know, any contact with him at all, they wouldn't have recognized him. They wouldn't have known it's him until they read the sign. And then they read the sign, and many as they see it, they realize, wait a minute, this is the guy that we were watching. This is the guy that's been in Israel now for months teaching and doing miracles, the one who said he was the Messiah, right? I mean, didn't we, we just heard him in the temple last week. Uh, No, I, you know, when I was in the Galilee, this is the guy I followed around for a while. He was curing everyone. Yeah, he raised someone from the dead back in Bethany last week, I was told. You know, they're they're having these recollections of him. One guy even remembers, oh, didn't he say he was going to tear down the temple and, and rebuild it in three days? In all those cases, they're wondering the same thing. They're all saying to themselves, wait a minute, this is the guy with so much power This is the guy that can cure people and raise people from the dead and look at him. Why doesn't he perform a miracle for himself? What's wrong here with this picture? Save yourself, they demand. Get down from that cross and I'll believe you. Even the the religious leaders, they are enjoying the moment. He said he was the son of God. Let God rescue him then, right? All of those comments are obviously deeply cynical. But more than that, they're completely ignorant. They're nonsensical. Think about it for a minute. If the test of Messiahship, the test to prove Jesus was who he said he was, if that test was whether he could get down from the cross, you know, that would make him a pretty pathetic Messiah, really. And here's why. If you are a Messiah, how did you even end up on a cross? 
right? If you have the power to save yourself from the tyranny of men, isn't the true test then how you would have prevented even getting to that point in the first place? I mean, wouldn't you have stopped the false trial? Wouldn't you have stopped the beatings? Wouldn't you have stopped the scourging? Wouldn't you have stopped the nails before they were plunging into your body? I mean, why now is the test, oh, stop the process at this point? Wouldn't you have stopped it earlier? It's not even logical for them to have put this on him at this point. This is just a good example of how you and I, they did this, we can do this, how you can misjudge what God is doing in his purposes because you don't understand the plan, right? They see Jesus' predicament at this moment as evidence that he lacked the power that he claimed to have, and the reason they they assume that, they didn't realize he was dying voluntarily. It never dawned on them that someone would do that voluntarily, and yet the Bible is clear, no one put Jesus on the cross, no one did. He put himself there. John 10, 17, Jesus even tells us in advance he was going to do this. In John 10, 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. So as many have observed... Those nails did not hold Jesus to that cross. It was Jesus holding himself there by his determination to obey the Father. Now, he had the power to save himself. With one word, he ends this entire process. And as we studied already, Jesus had the moment, that power the whole way through, which is why he went through the process silently as a sheep led to slaughter. He never spoke in his own defense. He never tried to stop because he had the power to do it and he wasn't going to use it. No one in the crowd considered that possibility. No one thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe he wants to die. No one thought that. And out of ignorance, they mocked God's plan to save them from their own sin. Now, had Jesus chosen to save himself that day, then he would not have been able to save us today. That's the challenge. That's the, that's the dilemma. And if you know that, that is, if you know he's doing this voluntarily, and if you know that it comes to some great good in the end, well, now it all makes perfect sense, right? Now you could sit there witnessing it in all its horror and make sense of the bad thing. It would, it would come together in a way that at least you could understand it, right? Look, there are a lot of times in your life when you will not get what God is doing in the bad things or even in the good things of your life. And the temptation in those moments is to mock or at least criticize or question God or doubt God. And why? Because you don't understand something. Because it doesn't make sense to you, right? Because of a set of circumstances that don't make sense. And when things don't go your way, and if you turn to blaming God or questioning his power or his love for you, you have made a huge mistake. You should be questioning not God, but your own understanding. You simply acknowledge, I don't understand God. And here's the thing, friends, your, your ignorance is always the problem. <laughs> always, 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 because you cannot understand God's ways. Do you understand that? His ways are not your ways. It is not as though you're just not there yet. You ain't getting there. Not all the way. It's not possible. Your brain isn't big enough. If God tried to explain to you everything he's doing in every minutia of everyday life in every human being on the planet at the same good luck with that. How many of you even know what your own day is going to look like at the end of this day? Right? I mean, I tell this to people all the time. Do you know everything God has planned for your life? Oh, no, of course not. Do you have any clue what he's doing with you tomorrow? Well, not exactly. I mean, I kind of know, but he could do something I don't expect. Yeah, pretty much he will. You see the point? How much do you really know? We know, even if you knew all of this, which is a, something in itself, you still wouldn't know everything he's got planned for your life because this doesn't say that in detail, right? What am I saying? What I'm saying is this. When it comes to God's plan for the world, for your life, for your day, you have to have faith. You can't rely on I need enough knowledge. You know, as the saying goes, God is playing checkers, I'm sorry, chess. God is playing chess in the world, and we're playing checkers. Well, it's actually worse than that. You're not even playing checkers. You're a six-month-old baby chewing on a checker on the floor. 
We're not even in the same league as God when it comes to this stuff. So you put faith in him, you put faith in his word, so that you can say confidently, he works all things to good, and that's enough for me. You know, we can wait until heaven, if necessary, to get the rest of the story of what God is doing. And when you have that full story, when it comes, when we're with him, we'll understand why he did what he did and why it was him showing us love. It will make sense. I assure you, it will make sense. This crowd, as they walked past Jesus going about their day, they mocked him for being weak. And here's the funny thing, the strange thing, the ironic thing. He was demonstrating immense strength, right? Can you imagine how hard it would be for you to stay nailed to a cross when you possess the power, with one word, to get off the cross? How many minutes would you suffer and you'd be like, "Ah, I think that's long enough, I gotta go. Right? I mean, you wouldn't, I mean, how would you even get up there, right, if you knew you could stop it? It's, it's, in, it's mind-boggling. He is mocked for weakness while displaying unequal strength in securing our salvation for us. The psalmist says in Psalm 98, he did all of this by his own strength. Psalm 98.1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand, the, the word right hand there is euphemism for Jesus, for the right hand of God. His right hand and his holy, holy arm have gained the victory victory for him. There we go. Have gained the victory for him. All right, so this crowd is ignorant of God's plan, self-evidently, so they doubt Jesus's claims rather than stepping back and doubting their own understanding. And here's the scariest part. As they did that, they unknowingly were serving Satan. How? Well, first of all, you know Satan is always working to undermine God's plan, and that's especially true in the plan of redemption. Anything he can do to undermine God's plan, to, un- to undo the sin that he brought into the world, he's trying to stop that. Now, initially, Satan thought it would be best if he turned Israel against their Messiah, and then in doing so, lead them to put Messiah to death. At first, that made sense to Satan. That's the plan he picked, but here's the thing. Satan's always a step behind God. He can, he's never in league with God. He's always catching up to God. So as he st- Stands there, flies there, sits there. I don't know what he was doing. As he watches Jesus on the cross, he had to realize Jesus has the power to get off the cross, and he's not using it. And he's starting to think about that, and he's saying to himself, he's dying willingly. And he starts to wonder, did I overplay my hand? And now he realizes, wait a minute, this death is part of God's plan. We don't want God's plan. I don't know how he's working this thing out, but it can't be good. I've got to stop this. And so he starts tempting the crowd. He gets the crowd to start calling for Jesus to get down from the cross. And Jesus now, much like he was in the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan's invitation to take the easy way out. And Satan's doing everything he can at this point to get him to give up the plan. If Satan had succeeded, it would have ruined the plan of redemption, and that would have been a disaster. So the crowd assumes Jesus is wrong. In the process, they play into the devil's hand and potentially undo their own salvation. Obviously not. God didn't let it happen. But look, that's what happens when you fall into despair or doubt in the midst of a trial. When you start second-guessing God or accusing God or wondering where he is, etc., you're not only putting your own, you know, you're putting yourself in a position of unnecessary worry, but here's the other thing. You're doing the devil's bidding, Right? You're taking his bait. You're responding to his temptation that you would doubt God. And I think usually it leads you to respond to your trial in the wrong way. What God intended it to accomplish in your life, you'll take it in the wrong direction. Look, here's a simple tip. You want to avoid being sucked in by the enemy to do these sorts of things? Here's a simple tip. God's never wrong. Right? I mean, it's pretty simple, right? God is never wrong. Never assume he is wrong. Never assume his word is wrong. Never assume he is wrong. Here's what you should assume. You're wrong. That is to say, you don't understand something. You don't see the big picture yet. Right? If you, see, if you read something in the Bible that doesn't make sense to you, do not assume the Bible has error. Assume your understanding is lacking. If you're calling out to God and you're not hearing God, don't assume he's not speaking. Assume you're not listening right? If you suffer the consequences of your own sin, recognize that it's you that made the mistake, not God, right? When you don't understand God, just don't blame God. It's never him. It's always you. It's always us, right? There's something lacking, but here's the encouragement. 
There is a day coming when you will know the truth. There is a, that is, you will know it all. You'll have the full story. That's promised to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know him fully, even as I am fully known. That is a promise to every believer. He's speaking about the difference in how we know God now and how we'll know him when we're with him. When you get to that day, here's your encouragement, the little bit you get from me once in a while. Here's, when you get to that day, you will know all things. That is, you will appreciate all that God was doing in your life. You'll have eternity to reflect on that. And you know what you're going to be doing as you look at the plan in its fullness? You're going to be praising him for it. I assure you, the Bible says so. Do you understand that you could do that now? <laughs> you see, I mean, when you get to that future moment, let's get there without regret. Won't it be better if when you get there, you won't also be looking back on all the days in which you mocked, criticized, doubted, or whatever, God, in your ignorance, when now you see it fully and you can praise him for it. Instead, why don't we praise him now in our ignorance, counting all trials as joy, as James says, because we know one day we will. <laughs> There's no doubt it's going to, the difference between now and then is we'll just understand why it should have been counted as joy. But you don't have to doubt them in the meantime. I am sure that these spectators, whoever they were, when they had their chance to look back on this moment from wherever they spend eternity, they are going to regret that they mocked the Lord who was dying to save them. And you know what's even more incredible about that moment? The two guys on either side of him, they're doing the same thing. Look, verse 44 the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is unbelievable. Remember what we studied last week about the effect of being on the cross? You can't even breathe. So when you do want a breath, it's this Herculean painful effort to lift yourself up off of those nails just long enough to catch a breath and then let go again. It's just horrendous, right? You need a breath to speak. So after the effort to get a breath, what are you going to say? You think you might... Be careful with your last words before you're about to... These guys are making effort to speak things in mocking of their fellow sufferer. It's, 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 I mean, their lives are eventually... They're, they're, for all intents and purposes, they're dead. Right? They are dead. They know they're not going to be rescued. In fact, death is only a matter of time. And in that way, crucifixion is a rather unique form of, of execution. In this sense. In every other kind I can think of, once the process starts whatever that process is, it usually ends very quickly. And as a result, the person has no time to reflect on their destiny at the moment that it starts. It's kind of over, right? I mean, even if you look at someone today who sits on death row waiting to be executed, they still have hope of rescue, right? They're not completely convinced they're dead yet. But once you were nailed to a cross, you were dead. The end was not in doubt. It was slow. It was painful. But you were dead. And under those circumstances, and it's the only kind of execution that I can think of in which the process leaves you fully conscious all the way through, right? So it's this unique set of circumstances in which you would think you might choose your final thoughts and words carefully. You might be thinking differently about yourself in that moment because you're about to face your maker. You know, there's a, there's a period of time there. But these guys under those circumstances, they show no fear of God. They... I mean, you don't even have to believe Jesus is, is God to know that you shouldn't be unkind to someone else. You know, you're about to go see your maker. They are mocking a fellow condemned man. Now, Matthew leaves the story of these two guys there and no further. And the reason he does that is that he's trying to show you a fulfillment of some scripture here. Uh, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 both tell us that the Messiah dies utterly alone and without anyone on his side. And what, what Matthew's trying to show you here is how utterly alone Jesus was. He is so utterly alone, even fellow condemned prisoners who have nothing to gain and nothing against, they're willing to mock him too. He is the creator of the universe with not a single friend. That's the way to see the moment. Now, if Matthew had told you the rest of the story about these two robbers, it would have undermined that picture for, for his purpose. So he left that piece out. The other writers give us the rest. So what you learn when you read the other writers, particularly Luke, is that Jesus started alone, yes, but he turned one of his enemies into a friend. When you hear the story, it's really quite remarkable. There's a moment where this 
one of these thieves stops rebuking Jesus and starts looking to him as Lord. Luke 23, 40, it's three verses. Listen to this. But one of the thieves answered and rebuked his fellow thief, saying, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, he didn't do this, obviously. He was a little tied up at the moment. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All right, this is a short passage. I doubt many of you have, or I'm sure all of you know this. I doubt anyone here hasn't heard the story of the thieves and the one that believed and so on. But man, you've got to think about this carefully because this is, this is an incredibly important moment. In fact, this is the most dramatic deathbed confession ever. And I don't mean that with any irony. This thief was a dead man walking or hanging. And he is so close to death, yet still conscious, right, because of the manner of death. He's in his final hours. He makes a dramatic turn. In fact, it's so dramatic, it's almost unbelievable. Obviously a miracle of God. One moment he is mocking Christ, and the next moment he's acknowledging him by faith. And, you know, I'm sure if you've studied this or even heard of it, you know what Jesus says next to this man, right? Luke 23, 43, he said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, speaking in gasps, here again, Jesus can't talk very well either. He lifts himself up and he kind of gasps out this phrase, right? Today you're going to be with me in paradise, meaning you're going to be saved. I, you know, you'll be happy to hear this, but uh, I'm not Jesus. But if I was, if I was Jesus, you know what my first thought would have been with that very first breath? What happened to all the mocking you were just doing a minute ago? A little different now, isn't it? You know, not to make fun of it, I understand it's serious. But my point is, this is a remarkable thing. I want you to learn what you just le- or understand what you just learned about Jesus. The moment someone comes to faith in Jesus, Jesus says nothing about our sin. There's no, what about yesterday? Hey, where were you an hour ago? No, he moves directly to receiving you. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes, uh, who comes to me will not hunger, and who believes in me will not thirst. All that the Father gives me I, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will not certainly cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus received this man without even a moment of hesitation because he knew the man had a repentant heart. And that proved the Father's will. The Father in a sense, spiritually speaking, sent this man to Jesus in this moment, and as Jesus said, all that the Father sends me, I will certainly not cast out a one. Jesus promised the man that on that very day, after both of them died, obviously, they would be in paradise together. Now, in case you're at all wondering what that term paradise means, you know, we don't use that term very often ourselves when we talk about where we're going, but it is a biblical term for heaven. Paul uses the very same word when he describes heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And Jesus himself actually uses this same word again later when he writes the letters to the churches in Revelation. When he speaks to the church in Ephesus, he calls heaven paradise. So in simple terms, paradise just means being in Jesus' presence, wherever he is, in a sinless state, without the worry and burden of sin or pain anymore, without death in our life anymore. That's what Jesus expressed would be true for this man the moment he died. And why? Look at what's happened. The little bit I read is all we have because he expressed faith in Jesus in his final hour on the cross. And this moment is a perfect illustration of how every single human being is saved. Whether you're hanging on a cross or sitting on your bedroom couch or or bedroom be- laying on your bed or sitting on your couch or in church or wherever it is that you might come to know Jesus, doesn't matter your circumstances, this is how it works in everyone's heart. And look at how it happened. First, repentance. Always starts there. The thief said he was suffering justly, he said. Turned to his own friend and said, hey, you know, you might want to think twice about what you're saying. We're here for good reason. And then he adds, this man's done nothing wrong, which is effectively saying he is sinless. Now, that is true repentance. Don't misunderstand what repentance is. Repentance is not merely saying, I know I have sin. There's not a person on earth, I guess, that I've never met anyway, who, if you press them hard enough, sooner or later, they'll acknowledge, okay, I'm not perfect. 
Everyone knows they got sin. I mean, that's the least surprising thing anyone could come to agree with, right? Yeah, we all got sin. That's not repentance. Knowing you're a sinner is self-evident. The issue is knowing you lack the righteousness required to get into heaven. That, in other words, knowing that you're a sinner is not a surprise. Knowing you're not good enough, that's the news. You aren't good enough. You might think you're better than so-and-so. You might think you've done pretty well overall. Let me tell you, friend, you're not even close. The standard of heaven is perfection. That's what this thief understood. We're here because we deserve it. He's done nothing wrong. That's the difference. Perfect, sinful. You gotta be perfect, not sinful. And how is anyone perfect? If, if we've all got sin, we're all in trouble, right? That's why Jesus is dying. He's taking the sin we have in his place and he, because he lived a perfect life, he has a perfect life to give to us. By faith, we are a, we're given, if you want to call it that, or God assigns to us the perfection of Christ. Yeah, you're not perfect, but he is. You get his perfection, he took your sin. The great exchange, it's called. That's the gospel, right? This guy, in this moment, came to recognize, and we call it repentance, that he needed what Jesus had. And that his death was not for his own sake. That's implied, right? He's done nothing wrong. He's not dying for his own sake. His death then is a sacrifice. A sacrifice for me. And I need it. He must have understood that somehow. So with time running out, this guy's got a few hours left. He makes the smart call. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, when I tell someone how to be saved, and they say, what do I need to do to be saved? We typically don't say, here's the phrase, Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. That's not our way. We have other words, right? Jesus, make me Lord, you know, I'll make you Lord of my life, or you know, I give you my sins, and you take whatever, whatever words we use, right? Jesus, I believe in you. Look, the words don't matter. Not fundamentally. It's what you believe you're saying it for, right? That's what matters. And some people make these really awkward confessions of faith. I've heard people stumble through things. You're like, man, if that's enough to save you, hallelujah, because I don't even... <laughs> I don't even know what you said, but that's fine. <laughs> it's especially true when you get in the baptismal, right? You do the pre-work. You say, look, how do you, do you know? Do you know the gospel? Yes, we get it all worked out. Very eloquent. Get them in the water, and they're like, Jesus and me, and I'm here. And good enough, friend. Dunk, you know. Because we know what you meant. Right? The thief placed his faith in that sacrifice and said to Jesus, have mercy on me. That's it. That's all he needed. And what did Jesus say to him? Those aren't the words I was expecting. Can we practice that another time, please? No. He said, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, you would look at this and you'd say, well, okay, I see the pattern there. I get it, Steve, but how did he know all these things? There is no record in any of the gospel accounts of this moment of anyone preaching anything to this man, but more than that, there's no record of anyone saying what the gospel is to anyone around him at any point, anywhere in that moment, by anybody. How did he learn it without someone explaining it to him you know what he learned it the same way you did because the father in heaven revealed it to him by means of the spirit of god did you remember when peter said to jesus you are the lord you are the christ you are the savior what did jesus say to peter in response to peter's confession in matthew 16 17 jesus when he replied said to peter blessed are you simon barjona because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you or we could say it this way no human being taught you that he says, but my Father who is in heaven did. Look, flesh and blood does not reveal God to anyone. I mean, yes, I can tell you what's in here, but even then, the reason you believe what I just said, the reason, you, the reason this makes an impression on you is not because I said it, because the Father in heaven brought that information into your heart through the Spirit of God in such a way that you received it. God reveals himself. So God uses methods, yes, Human methods, quite often. Preachers, books, internet, TV shows, friends, parents, whatever. But those methods are not why you receive it. They're the mechanism God used to deliver it. It's ultimately God, though, making it real that results in you receiving it. And that's what had to have happened here. And this just happens to be one of a couple of moments you can list in Scripture in which God chose to do it without a single human being involved. What's the other classic example of that? Paul on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus doesn't need us, but he condescends to let us be a part of it to our own benefit, right? That's the idea here. 
And as a result of how this happens, this short exchange is at least as important as any other single conversation in the entire Gospels. Why? Because when you consider all that you learn from it, you find this setting the standard of faith in such a way that it is irrefutable by any kind of false teaching. It settles so many things that have come to vex the church from time to time. Here's one and maybe the key one. You are saved by faith alone. You are saved by faith alone. Because friends, if there was any good work at all that is required to get you to heaven, this guy couldn't do it, right? He couldn't move. He couldn't go anywhere. Look, if that person had to do something to get himself to heaven, name for me what that something had to be. What, what is it you would imagine this guy could do at this point? Remember also, this guy was mocking Christ a few minutes ago, right? So if you tell me, well, he was maybe good enough, what? He was just telling Jesus off like a minute before he believes. You can't get worse than that, right? If you've got some friend or family member that you're telling yourself, there's no way that person, well, wait a minute, and if works are required for salvation, even one, this man is not going to paradise because he couldn't do anything. Among the things we know he didn't do, he didn't keep the law. I mean, self-evidently, look where he is, right? He didn't do any good works to make up for his sin. He couldn't. He was stuck there. He didn't say a prayer. No evidence of that. He didn't go up to an altar. No evidence of that. He didn't go to church. He didn't go to synagogue. He didn't attend a special new believers class. He didn't possess some secret knowledge that he had to say and learn and memorize. You know what else he didn't do? He didn't even get baptized. He didn't do anything. If you tell me that you've got to do any of those things to get to heaven, I say, go look at the thief on the cross and explain that one. And don't say he didn't go to heaven. Jesus in his own mouth said, you're going there today. No purgatory, no waiting, no working it out later. No, we'll see when you get there, you're going to be there. Faith alone. What a great story. This, this just absolutely cuts the knees off almost every piece of nonsense that's ever been floated for how you get to heaven other than faith alone. Secondly, this man's experience proves that it's never too late for anyone. Right? Again, that friend or that family member that you're thinking, I don't think it's going to happen. They're already so old. I just don't see that at this point what's, you know, what are the odds? And they're so hard-hearted. They hate God. They hate religion. They hate me talking about Jesus. Look, I don't know your family member or your friend, but this man is about as hard-hearted as you can get. He's dying on a cross and he's still willing to mock God. I mean... <laughs> Look, if you're that close to the end and you know it and you're still willing to talk negatively about God, you have got the hardest heart I can possibly imagine. And he is, I mean, minutes from death and he professes faith. And what's more, he does it without anyone persuading him. That's the other piece of this, right? You think, I have tried so hard, I can't think of another thing to say. Stop trying. Start praying and, and, and trusting, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I can't guarantee anybody's salvation. You know that. But what I am saying is don't give up hope, right? Uh, one, you know, if you want to look at it this way, it's not as though no one persuaded this man. One did persuade him, the only one who can, right? The Father persuaded him. God brought faith to this man's heart, and no one's going to resist God. No, there is no power in the universe greater than God. If God wants to bring faith into your heart, nothing going to stop it. Do not give up on that person in your life who has not believed to this point. Do not even give up on them when they are on their deathbed. And I should add, if that person confesses Christ with their dying breath, do not doubt that it was a true confession. Again, I'm not promising anything to you, but if this man could turn at this point in his life, then who are we to say that anyone's turn is too late to be believed? You know, when God gets a hold of someone, it is a miracle. It is a surprise. <laughs> it isn't what you expect. This thief on the cross is our proof that it's never too late for God to reach somebody. And have you considered this? There's a reason why he wasn't saved earlier. Right? There's a reason why it had to be at the last minute. There's a reason why it was then and not earlier. And the same can be true for that person you're waiting on. And then one last lesson. The thief's experience reminds us, I think, of what we've been studying through most of this morning, and that is God can use the worst of circumstances to produce the greatest good. 
This man, think about his day. When he opened his day planner that morning, he looked at what he was facing in that day, and he's like, man, this is going to be a rough one. I got the worst experience in humanity about to happen here. I'm going to face crucifixion. I'm going to be dead by the end of the day. By the, by, you know, from his point of view, this is a day filled with terror and disaster and the end of all good and he knows and hell to follow, probably. And yet, on that day, what he didn't know was in God's day planner, God the Father had decided to nail him a few feet from the Messiah. And he was so hard-hearted that God ensured he couldn't get away for a while and he'd have to sit there and just take the whole thing in. Look, because of the terrible experience he had that day, I mean, yeah, it was painful. We can make fun a little of this, I guess, just to lighten it, but you know, the reality is this guy suffered a lot in his body, but because his body suffered so much, his soul spends eternity with God in paradise. And I will tell you this, there is a day coming when we will meet this man. Like we'll see all the saints. You're going to have a conversation with this guy, and I assure you that when you do, he is going to tell you, oh, it was so worth it. He's going to say, you know, it, it was bad there for a while. It was pretty tough. It sucked for a while. But you know what? I'd do it again. That's what he will tell you. And in that way, I want you to take out of today a little bit of confidence that in the darkest periods of your life, which, look, could you compare anything you've gone through to what this guy had to go through on that day? I hope not. But whatever dark days you have, you need to understand, sometimes they're that dark because we wouldn't do it the easy way. Or because in God's glory, this will make it better for him. That is, the glory of God is increased by us going out of something so bad into something so good later. We just can't see the good yet. We're not there yet. The story's not over yet. Have confidence. Have faith. When you don't understand why bad things are happening, don't blame God. Just blame your ignorance and look to him in faith, knowing one day you will understand and you will praise him, as I know this guy did. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this thief. I thank you, Father, for his hard life and his unrepentant heart until the moment that you showed up, Father, and you showed us what it is you do for each of us. And we thank you for the assurance that he gives us that by faith alone, trusting in the work of Christ alone, we can be with you in paradise. And as we've made that confession in each of our lives, Father, we are confident now in, not, in the knowledge of our future. And for any who have not made that confession, Father, I invite them now, Father, by your will and by your power to make that confession. And as we walk this journey with you, Father, as we go through this life, as we await our day with you, and the things of this life come upon us, Father, I do pray that each of us can take a new and better understanding of it with us from this teaching today, that we be in ignorance perhaps, but not without faith that because we know that you are doing good and we can trust in that, that we'll accept it, Father, in joy, even if we do it with ignorance. Help us, Father, through those difficult moments. Bring us out. Show us the good, if you can, in this age so that we can have greater confidence to go to the next trial. And, Father, we look forward to that day we'll be with you face to face so much so that we can escape all this and see our reward. Thank you, Father, for that promise as well. Bring us back here in weeks to come. Let us continue in our study, Father, for we desperately want to know all that you have for us in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.